and action. Hello out there to all our 34 Circe podcast. And cut. <laughs> Hello out there to all our 34 Circe Salon podcast listeners. I'm Don Sam Alden. And I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you so much for following this podcast and for your support for programs that explore the untold stories of female agency and adventure throughout history. This program is more than just something that we love doing, and we really deeply love it. It's also a mission for us. And we'd love for it to be a mission for you as well. So we've created an account on Patreon, a fundraising website, in order to help us fund the podcast and some other really great, really fun projects that we have planned. So if you're able, please go over to patreon.com slash 34 Circe and pledge your support. You can do a one-time donation or a monthly subscription. And any amount, even a dollar, helps fulfill the mission to help make matriarchy great again. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us in this exciting little commercial spot that we've given you. So <laughs> now on to the show. Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and here in the temple with me <laughs> is none other than Don Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome everyone. And we are very honored today to have with us a wonderful guest, Elaine Pagels. Welcome, Elaine. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I, I have to say, and I, I've, I've said this to you, you are one of my favorite authors, and I am really delighted to be able to talk with you. Uh, just a very briefly, I'll just say that Elaine is the, if I have this right, the Harrington Spear uh, Professor of Religion. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. And that's at Princeton University, that fantastic university in New Jersey. Yes, it's my alma mater, too, so I'm proud of it. Um <laughs> She is the author of Gnostic Gospels, The Origin of Satan, Adam, Eve, and the Serpent. And please, Elaine, let us know a little more about yourself. Well, um, I just sort of, I grew up in Palo Alto in California, um, which I thought was a very boring town and had to get out of it as fast as I could. And when I went off to New York, first to study dance at the Martha Graham School, um, which was all I knew about contemporary dance at the time from California and then discovered that I was a pretty good dancer, but you can't be that and be a professional in New York. So plan B was going to graduate school and I went off to try to understand how, um, how the Christian movement started. What do we know about it? What do we know about Jesus, if anything? And how do we know it? And how did it become what it became? So that's that's what I set out to do. How? Why? Why was it that? Why the? What was the impetus to want to explore 
how the Christian movement started. And by Christian movement, I just so for the listeners understanding, I assume you, you mean the foundation of the early church, of early Christianity, what became yes. called well, the Christian. Sean, in my family, um, I'd grown up secular, culturally Protestant. My father had given up religion for Darwin as soon as he encountered mm-hmm. Darwin and threw away the kind of ferocious Presbyterianism of his family. And and so I was brought up to think religion was only for people who just weren't educated, right? They didn't know about science. Um, he became a biologist, you know, okay, mm-hmm. different world. And so I loved poetry. I loved music. I loved dance, theater. But when I was about 14, <laughs> very bored in Palo Alto, I went with some high school friends to a, an event at the sports stadium in San Francisco, the Cow Palace. Um, And I didn't know what it was, but I thought it would certainly be more interesting than where I was growing up. It turned out to be a Billy Graham crusade. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And there were 18,000 people packed into the stadium where I'd seen, you know, baseball. And and 6,000 more in the parking lot. And Billy Graham was preaching. And he was pretty amazing. For a 14-year-old, I was was very impressed. He was quite remarkable. Um. Both challenging America and the pretensions of scientists, which I was never heard anyone do, but also this whole invitation, you can get born again and you can change your life and you can start all over. And, you know, when you're 14, that I found it irresistible. And it was also emotionally very powerful scene with the 6,000 people in the choir singing and thousands of people, you know, uh, being born again, it was great. So I, I went up to the altar call and joined it and joined an evangelical Christian group for about a year. It's like falling in love when you're 13 or 14. Right. Um, and it was a powerful experience to discover that these people had a sort of life that was not on a flat earth. It was sort of open to a cosmic scene, you know sort of God and Satan and Jesus and, and and people as participants in this huge cosmic drama. And and it was also a community of very closely knit people and it was it was quite wonderful in some ways. Uh, I discovered I, I had I later thought it was like the way I had been reading The Wizard of Oz when I was about seven or eight, you know, it's it's a sort of template which I could see myself as Dorothy, you know, going out with with a little dog and, and, and you know, killing off the wicked witch and all of that. And now you're living in a world of God and Satan. It was, it was powerful. I'm not making fun of it. I'm saying I really actually found it um, exhilarating. Yes. Yeah. And it was like right, yeah. not, not living on a flat earth, you know. So, but after a year, I, I just had to quit. Um, was it too intense or too... No. Uh, maybe at variance with things that you had already, you know, that you had experienced growing up or what was it? What happened is that one of my high school friends was killed in an automobile accident. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Um, he was 16 and mm. uh, and a couple of our friends survived. Um, and I went back to the evangelical group and, and, I, and I said... This is what happened. And they said, oh, that's, that's terrible. Um, was he born again? And I said, no, he was Jewish. And they said, somebody said, then he's in hell. 
Oh, oh my God. God. And I felt like I'd been socked in the stomach. So right. I just, yeah. I just oh kind of God. reeled. And I thought, that has nothing to do with what I thought this was about. This is about the love of God, right? No, wasn't Jesus Jewish? Anyway, I just walked out of there and I never went back. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so, and later, actually, one of our friends who survived the crash started the group called the Grateful Dead, um, which I realized the name had come out of that crash. Um, Jerry, well, wait, wait, hold, wait, hold on a second. One of your friends started <laughs> yes. the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yes. His name, was, his name was Jerry Garcia, and he you were was, you were friends with Jerry Garcia. <laughs> I was in high school at the time. He he wasn't Jerry Garcia then. He was just right. a guy who could play an amazing twelve string guitar. And he'd come out of the army and he was hanging out in various places and we had a bunch of maverick friends. So anyway, and later I learned that I when I heard that he'd started that band with the changed the name from the Warlocks, which is the earlier name of his group, um, I realized it came out of that crash, because he nearly died. And so did his friend Alan. So anyway. I, I'm 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 still astonished right here. <laughs> so that's that's amazing. That's amazing. That's uh, actually what happened. <laughs> wow. So, I you know then we I hung around with those people, with with that group all summer, quite closely because we were all pretty much in shock about what happened. And then I decided to go off and study dance, as I say, and went to New York. And when that a couple of years later. I thought, well, wait a minute, if I have to have a plan B, what is it about that experience that I just sort of dropped that was so powerful? I mean, what is Christianity about? I mean, was it about that? Or could it have been any religion? Could it have been Buddhism, for example? Or was it, what do we know about Christianity anyway? And how did I get so engaged in it? I mean, it was quite remarkable to me that that had happened. So I, but I didn't want to be brainwashed. So I wouldn't go to any place where they were, you know, preaching at you. I went to a university that wasn't anymore. <laughs> it had been built as a Christian school, and that was Harvard University. Uh-huh. And and I wanted to find out what do we know, you know, and um, started, you know, looking into this historically, trying to figure out what we know about the early Christian movement, and suddenly. My professors of the early history of Christianity said, wait a minute, we have a discovery. Happened in Egypt, has been totally unavailable to scholars until now, and only for us, actually, here, and another group in California, at Claremont. And it's 50 texts that go back to the beginning of the Christian movement. They were all declared heresy um, and just totally denounced by the bishops. One of my professors said, we just thought they were weird. And they were kind of weird. <laughs> but I fell in love with these texts. Yes. And I discovered that everything about um, women's participation in the early Christian movement or the idea of a feminine uh, way of speaking about the divine source instead of just a masculine one, None of that is in Christianity as we knew it, but it was all over these secret texts. So that's what I've spent a lot of time doing. So just a couple of questions on that, Elaine. So two things. So one, you you said your professors 
just thought they were were weird. Did did they not see the the same potential in it that you saw, particularly with respect to women? And no, there were hardly any women on the team. I can't even think of another one at that point. There were thirty five of us. Um, I don't think there was another woman on the team, but. What they saw was a potential for what we didn't know about the early movement. There was, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Peter. I mean, all kinds of early source texts and traditions that we just had been, we just had never seen. And so they were fascinated with, you know, what what does this tell us about the way Christianity began? I mean, actually... It changes the game entirely, Sean and Dawn. So yes, absolutely. And and I might point out that it's not that they were uh, they were just sort of lost accidentally. They were deliberately suppressed. These they alternative texts. It, yeah. it, you're totally right. It took a long time to get rid of them. That was yes. the problem. And and a lot of the bishops worked very hard at that. You're absolutely yes. glad you brought that up. Well, well, let's talk about, let's introduce the listener to what these texts were and what this movement was, this particular, this different viewpoint, this suppressed viewpoint. Um, can you just maybe give a, a very brief overview of, of what it is, and then we can dive into the particular aspects, especially with respect to women? Well, there are so many places one could start, but for me, it was when, um, when I got my first job in New York, I was teaching at Barnard and they had. They decided to have a, a a women's conference, and they said, "Why don't you give us a talk about what you learned about women in the early Christian movement?" So I told them what I'd learned in graduate school, which is nothing. <laughs> uh, we don't write. We don't write about them. Um, you know, there's nothing to say. And then really? I thought, "Hey, wait a minute. These secret texts are all full of remarkable." different perspectives, for example. So I started to read to these 2,000 women. I'll never, it was just wonderful fun. A text called On the Origin of the World. And in it, the Lord says, the God of Israel says, I am God and there is no one before me. And then his mother speaks from way above and says, now don't tell lies, Sabaoth. (laughs) 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 His mother is way up there and her name is Wisdom. Um, and she's she's telling him that he doesn't know what's going on. And all of these women laughed just like you did, Don. I mean, just roared with laughter. And I thought, hey, you know what? This is really about gender issues. I mean, these are these are folk tales. These are stories. These are sort of re- revising and playing with Bible stories. But they have a point, right? Right. And one of the points is that this claim in Jewish tradition that there's only one God and that God is a male <laughs> and there's no goddess anywhere. Right. Um, that's just not the way it was seen by everybody. But the people who saw it another way had their voices silenced. Yes, absolutely. It reminds me so much of, of uh, in many ways, it reminds me of that um, that story about how um, when John Adams was among the the founders of this country working on writing the constitution and his wife, Abigail says, you know, remember the women, John, 
And of course, he didn't. And, and uh, you know, everything in the Constitution was written about the men, the men, the men, the white land owning men. And I feel in many ways that sort of same pattern has repeated in so many ways throughout history yes. that, um, you know, in the beginning, in the birth of things, there is so much uh, female energy, male and female energy mixing and men and women working together. But as soon as things start to cool and solidify and become sort of set out into systems, it seems like all of the women's contributions are deliberately excised and suppressed. And all of the feminine characters, as you said. I mean, you know, in, in the Hebrew Bible, there is only one God, and that God is certainly a male. And, and um, you know, there, there's simply no question about that in those texts. And, and then you have Christianity saying, wait a minute, there's God in three persons, Right? There's Father, right. Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm. Except. But, <laughs> except what? Except that there are other versions of that, as you have pointed out. Yes, there's Father, Son. And in because now the early sources are all in Greek after they were in Aramaic. They were written in New Testaments in Greek, and all these sources we found were in Greek. So the father and son, of course, masculine, and the spirit in Greek is, is a neuter word. So you have two males and a neuter yeah. as the three persons, right? But in these secret texts, as, as you are alluding to, Don, uh, there's a vision that one of the, one of the disciples has of a, of a brilliant light shining from which Jesus is speaking after his death. And he says, he says, John, John, why are you weeping? I'm the one who's with you always. I am the father. I am the mother and I am the son. And I thought, who would you expect to find with the father and the son? Because in Hebrew, the word for spirit, ruach, would be feminine or in Syriac in Hebrew. So they would have understood uh, a masculine feminine dynamic but it just doesn't come across in greek and it certainly doesn't come across in english right right yeah so, so there were many different sects of these first christians that we that have been called gnostics and and among these sects there were different um interpretations of or expressions i should say of the feminine divine um, and uh, one of the ones that I was particularly interested in, in reading um, Gnostic Gospels was when you talked about Valentinus. I don't know why I connected with Valentinus in some way, but there was something about it that was like, wow, I really find this fascinating. But one of the things you wrote about was that he had sort of, he and his followers believed in that dyad of, of male and female uh, almighty. Yes, that is, well, you like Valentinus for all the right reasons. He's really, he's, he's the most, well, first of all, he was a poet. And he speaks poetic language and has a poetic imagination. And, um, and that's what, I think that's what good um, religious mythology language loves. And as you mm -hmm. say, when he said, he said, he talked about the divine source. He said, well, in the beginning, um, there was just um, there was just uh, the depth, just the word the word abyss. It means the the, the depth, 
the deep, the depth of reality, right? And and with that depth, there was nothing except silence because there's no way to speak about the depth. And then he said, but then the divine source, which is a kind of energy that comes pouring forth from those original realities that he's calling the abyss, they they emerge as dynamic movement in masculine and feminine um, streams almost. So as you said, he's, he then speaks about the divine being as a kind of flow of energy, mingling masculine and feminine energy uh, through 30 different patterns. And one time I asked a colleague at Columbia, what would happen if you translate this into Sanskrit? Because he was working on tantric Buddhism. And he said, oh, well, then you'd have one of the tantric visions of God. Ah. And I thought, oh, really? (laughs) Okay. But also, you would find something that you find, as you probably know, in Jewish mysticism, where you find the talk about sephirot. Do you know this language? I've heard, yes, I've, I've heard that. No, wait, because we had, we, we talked we had earlier. spoken uh, with, yeah. a, with a, a female rabbi on um, right. the feminine divine, and we spoke quite a bit about the Shekhinah. Yes. as the sort of feminine energy of the creator. That seems to be the same tradition that Valentinus was drawing on, perhaps. It could be. Um, because uh, Jewish mysticism, and this is much later written down, does speak about, as you said, the Shekinah as the divine presence as manifested Imminently in the world, and the masculine is is the divine presence transcendent to the world, and so these interact all the time in human life, and and that kind of model of a sort of flowing energies that are visualized as masculine feminine energies is really deeply part of Valentinus's teaching, and in his groups we find that women were participating in the same kinds of roles as men, and that's very unusual yes among these early christian groups and of course it was considered disgusting by the fathers of the church uh, they have some choice things to say about it I'm so how, we, we we know this we know this i guess i think it, you had mentioned through the fathers because one of the things i was you know always curious about in, in reading your work was you know how we know what we know about these early teachings and i think you pointed out that it was tertullian i guess Irenaeus. Those are the two sources you use to kind of reveal what the the, the anti-Gnostic uh, church fathers were exactly. to say. Was that? Okay. Yeah. I mean, and the reason you know these texts are very significant and not just some kind of um, eccentric library tucked off in the middle of nowhere is that major figures in the formation of early Christianity, like the ones you mentioned, Sean, Tertullian in Africa, Carthage, and Irenaeus living in Lyon. He was a missionary from Syria. Um, Irenaeus, they spent decades of their lives challenging what they felt was, you know, bad theology. And they go through, Irenaeus has five massive commentaries they're, they're big volumes. 
which he must have spent 30 or 40 years writing against the heresies, it's called. And so he, he tells you all of this kind of garbled stuff that, they, that he says he ridicules. But it, it's important enough for him to spend his life contending with it. So you know that he had to work hard to do that. And he said, okay, look, there's really only four Gospels. There can't be more than that because, you know, there's four corners of the world and there's four winds. And so, obviously, there can only be four Gospels. <laughs> I mean, figure that out. That's right, right. right. But he basically said, the heretics say they have a lot more, but theirs are really all garbage. We didn't know what they said, but now we do. Right. It wasn't until Nag Hammadi discoveries that we actually know what he was writing about, or at least part of what he was writing about. Yes, and what he was writing against. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What, what were some of the other sort of con conceptions of the feminine divine? Uh, and maybe we can use that to, to transition a little bit into when you and I had talked a little bit about Mary and the difference between, you know, the, the church, what Mary represents to the contemporary Christian church, particularly the Catholic faith, which is my faith, and what these, uh, what this, the concept the Gnostics had of a feminine divine. So maybe. Are you thinking of Mary Magdalene? Sorry, Mary, uh, Mary, mother of uh, mother of God. Mary, mother so, uh, of Jesus. Yeah. Interesting. Because uh, I, it was interesting that you had mentioned to me that the, you know, the concept of Mary in the contemporary church is 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 really and and it's it's also said in mass. It's made made very clear. Mary is not divine. You can you can revere her, but she is not to be worshipped in a divine way. And as you point out, she's the handmaiden. She's the help. You know, she receives, uh, as opposed to way some of the Gnostic concepts of the creatrix or creative mother of God. So just wondering what other examples other than Valentinus, were there other examples of, of these conceptions of this kind of creator mother or more, yes, more divine I mean, feminine? I was looking at just today at another text, Sean, called um, Trimorphic Protonoia, and which means the triple formed primal thought. This is the first, the primordial thought. <laughs> Wow. of human beings is a thought about God. But the word for thought or awareness is epinoia in Greek, which is a feminine word. You can translate it imagination too. And she says, I am the primordial awareness, epinoia. Uh, I, I move in every creature. I cry out in everyone. Um, you know, everyone speaks through me. And this is a kind of energy that is seen as, as the, the, well, she says at one point, I am the father and I am the mother. So this is the, the primordial energy from which all life comes. That's one of the texts. And there are others that have a similar perception. You mentioned that about Eve, too, hadn't you? I think you had said to me that there is this concept of Eve as being the kind of uh, the imaginative, the Adam's imaginative uh, form, his imagination, or uh, I can't remember how exactly you put it. But is it, is it similar to that? You're exactly right. I and mean, that's a different text. But it speaks of Eve as epinoia, as Adam's awareness, and as his his spiritual awareness, right? And and she awakens in him his awareness of the divine. 
Uh, that's that's a different use of the word, but it's it's obviously connected. So there are there are quite a few female figures that appear in the various um, texts of the Nag Hammadi collection, um, and we should emphasize that uh, the Nag Hammadi is a very diverse collection. It's not um, it's not one group of thought. It is a bunch of texts that really span the gamut in terms of the different ways that they describe creation, that they describe the divine, that they describe Jesus. But, um, but there are quite a few feminine figures that are named in them. Um, and one of the most significant is Sophia, wisdom. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about the different ways that wisdom appears in the various texts? That's a really important point you raise, Don. She wisdom appears actually in the Bible in the book of Proverbs. I think it's chapter eight. And in in the eighth chapter of the book of Proverbs, uh, in the Bible, wisdom is pictured as a feminine being who is calling out to men and saying, "Come to me." And and it's kind of a ironic or interesting image because she's seen as a kind of prostitute who's trying to lure people in but she is the opposite of a prostitute because she's divine wisdom and she's saying come to me and i will i will make you very happy and it's, <laughs> it's, it's a different a different promise of of joy and this is part of jewish tradition that later sees wisdom as a pattern a form of the shekinah a form of the divine presence of god either She's seen as spirit, chokhmah, or wisdom, ruah. And so wisdom is, uh, I'm sorry, wisdom is chokhmah and spirit. So wisdom is often personified. And in the book of Proverbs in the Bible, she speaks as though she says, I was with the Lord at the beginning of time. I, I created the world with him, and, and I was daily his delight. And you don't know whether the figure described as a kind of daughter figure or a consort and lover. But in either case, she's part of the creation process. That's hinted at in the Bible. And then it is played with and developed by Jewish mystics and by these, these, if you want to call them Gnostics, I just think they're Christians who are exploring that kind of language. And they know the biblical language. That's where they're, they're drawing on that. They're riffing is, on a theme. Yeah. Yeah. Is there an earlier uh, tradition? I guess I think you had said there there wasn't. So uh, I, I, what I was about to ask is, there, was there an earlier tradition of, of a feminine deity uh, in Judaism? But I think you had said that it, from the beginning it was strictly masculine. So where, where would this have come from? Where would these sorts of – it just – the idea of, like Don saying, they're riffing, or is there some other tradition they're borrowing on? Well, you know, I'm not, I haven't been looking at this much, Sean. There are people who say that there, there are a few traditions that suggest that the God of Israel had a feminine counterpart. Um, I forget the name of the authors who speak about that. I don't know much about that. That would have been a long, long time ago. Um but in these texts, I guess wisdom is seen as a being beyond the creator who inspires the creator with his ideas. Um, and 
who, for whom the creator of the world is a kind of um, architect who takes the plans of wisdom and puts them into effect and creates the world. Right. But she also wants to infuse the world with wisdom. And, and that takes, they say, sort of special kinds of spiritual understanding. And that's where we come to the Gnostics who um, embraced this idea of um, Jesus not as savior, but as teacher, as guide, who is, who is providing a level of understanding that all people can reach if they listen to their, um, their insight, their intuition, their personal experience with the divine. Have I got that right? Yes, I think that's the primary reason, because people say, well, why was all this stuff suppressed? But that, it seems to me, the major reason that many of these texts, you, you rightly recall that they're very diverse. They're not homogenous at all. They're, they're all poetry. Some are poetry, some are mythology, some are, um, I don't know, they're just all kinds of different different kinds of writing. But a theme that you find in, in many of them that I found powerful in the Gospel of Thomas, in the Gospel of Mary, and in others, is that the origin of life comes out of the divine light that came into the world in the beginning and infused all beings. And that's why this energy who calls herself protonoia or epinoia or, or wisdom um, is understood to be in everyone. And the idea is that you can also speak of that divine flowing energy source as light um, or as the image of the divine. But because these texts suggest, unlike Orthodox Christianity, that everyone comes from that source, that we all are come forth from the same source, that we all can find our way back to it. We have a kind of secret connection with the divine but it's hidden deep in us we may not even know it's there but if we look for it we can find inside ourselves a kind of path back to a connection with the divine and we can do that without a church or a savior or jesus or or anything as you said except this well intuition but, but they speak of the divine source as intuition in some ways. And that's something that institutional religious traditions don't want to publicize because it suggests you don't need them. Right. right. I have to say the, one of the things from reading you, a work that has stayed with me, there are a couple in particular, but one that's relevant to what you were just talking about is the gospel of Thomas. And it's, I, I love that gospel. I thank you for introducing me to that gospel through your writing. And I, and I thought of as soon as you started speaking about it was, was the saying number 70. If yes. you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. It is, that's such a beautiful line and amazing, uh, 
a bit of spiritual wisdom and it, and it comes from that gospel of Thomas, that Gnostic gospel. It's very much speaks to what you were just saying. Yes. I I'm very grateful to have found that too, because as soon as I looked at that, I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, you don't have to believe this. It just, that's how it is. This is not about belief. It's about, it's about inviting people to a spiritual path, which, which can be found, as you said, within each one of us but it's found in experience it's not found in doctrine or teaching or anything else in experience of a uh, connection and also then something that that awareness if we all come from that source that we're connected with each other and with all being not just human being but stars and trees and stones and and all others, you know, all other beings that, that there are. Right, right. To any life, to any life, we are all part of life. Yes, it's, it's the saying in, in uh, the Gospel of Thomas 77. Do you know that? Oh, one? yes. I, I haven't actually opened it up. It's split a piece of wood and I am there, that one. Yes. Yes, lift up the stone and you will find me there. Yes, Jesus says, I am the light that is before all things. I am all things. All things come from me and all things return to me. You just could lift up a rock and there, there is that energy. And that is very similar to the teaching of Jewish mysticism because if there you focus with intention, what they call kavanah, on any, anything in front of you, it could be a, a metal screen, <laughs> It could be a tree. If you focus on it with intention, you could perceive the divine energy that it, that has taken the shape of this object. And you see the universe as, as streams of energy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a perception of the universe as all coming from this same source. And that's... So I do think these traditions could be quite close to Jewish mystical teaching. And, and other traditions as well. I mean, that's very much, um, very much a, a pagan tradition as well, that there is divinity in everything and that, um, you know, the spark of the divine is, is everywhere in the world and that you can, you can access it, um, in any place, in any time, um, just by focusing on it. Yes. And, and, you know, these texts were found in Egypt, um, probably coming from copies of, ancient, of still more ancient texts than the actual ones we have now. Um, they were collected and hidden in a monastery library, and they were probably used for devotional practice by the monks in the earliest monasteries in Egypt before there were institutional churches. Right. Yeah. So going back to the gospel of truth, uh, or excuse me, the gospel of Thomas um, in the Nag Hammadi collection, and um, also going back to this idea of the many um, female figures that appear, let's, let's talk a little bit about Mary Magdalene, a favorite of mine. Yes. Um, and in, uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, it is very clear that Mary Magdalene is, um, 
is one of the disciples and not just one of the disciples. She is uh, the favorite uh, (laughs) disciple and sort of the star pupil um, of Jesus. And some of the other, um, some of the other apostles are a little bit jealous of her. Oh yeah. I sense and, and say things like, why do you love her more than you love us? That's in the Gospel of Philip, absolutely. And they say, are we supposed to listen to a woman now? I mean, come on, you know, can't be right. serious about that. And and at the end of the Gospel of Thomas, there's a saying that sounds like Peter says, tell Mary to leave us, because she's a woman and not worthy of life. You know, there's there's a prohibition against teaching Torah to a woman. And this is, after all, pretty much a pre-Christian text, because I mean, Jesus wasn't a Christian, right? If right. this secret teaching that goes back to the first century, it might be. Um, it's a tradition in which you don't teach spiritual matters to women. And and then Jesus says, I will take Mary and make her a male so that she may become a, a living spirit like the rest of you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, that that really irritates a lot of women that saying, but I think there's a there's a symbolic meaning in it, which comes from the beginning of the Gospel of Thomas, which suggests that the original creation was not male or female, but combined both. Um, it says the male is not male and the female is not female. And, you know, the opposites are all part of the same one being. It's a spiritual being. And that you have to go back to that sense of, who we were at the beginning of time, before we were differentiated into genders with different roles and characteristics to understand who we are spiritually. The transcendent of the sort of social role of female and yes. getting back to that, that um, spiritual existence, perhaps. If you look at saying 61 of Thomas, for example, um, uh, Jesus says, she says, <laughs> Mary says to Jesus, who are you, man, that you came up on my couch and have eaten from my table? And it, it sounds like a fairly sexual sexualized situation, you know, because people would eat on couches um, and he's, he's right there. And and he and then he seems to challenge that and say i'm i have i have what does he say i am the one who comes from what is the same and what is the same is not divided whoever is divided is full of darkness and whoever is not divided is full of light so he says i'm not you're you're addressing me as man and with this sort of sexualized comment and he's saying, no, it's not me, male, you, female. It's like saying, you have to get to the level where we're the same kind of being. Mm. And then, then you understand who I am. And when, when he says, I come from what was sort of part of the same being in the beginning, then she says, oh, I get it. I am your disciple. And then she understands that she is a disciple. But in Orthodox tradition, as you well know, she's not a disciple. There are 12 disciples. They're all men. She's not one of them. But here she is a disciple, as you said. Yeah. And, there's, there's, sorry, go ahead, Sean. 
No, I was just going to say, I'm just thinking about the Orthodox traditions and, and what is excluded and how women are treated in this in this light, which is the light of sin and negativity. Just, I, I remember you had mentioned, uh, and, and I don't want to pull us away from Mary Magdalene, we'll certainly want to circle back, but it just made me think of what you had mentioned that the Orthodox tradition had said about women's roles in the sense of all women, I think, how did you put it? Um, Jesus died because of each of you. That, that basically each of you is an Eve. Oh, that's and Jesus had to die. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you had said that to me. And the thing also that I guess really blew my mind is the idea of a, a woman's menstruation being this, the, uh, being directly tied to to the fall of man, to man's sin. And so, could you talk a little bit about all? Of, I mean, I, I put a bunch of things out there, but all those things, the way the church yeah. taught women what they were. In their eyes. Yes. I was looking in the book, Adam, Even the Serpent, at at what the rabbis said about the Adam and Eve story. And and um, and one of the things they say is, I was, I was really struck by this, of course, um, why does a woman, why do women walk at the head of the funeral procession? It's because they're guilty of shedding the blood of Adam. that They cause death. And that's why they have to bleed every month, because they... It, they have to be reminded of their sin. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> okay. That, that's the message, right? Um, and there are other, and another part of the Midrash Rabbah, which is some early rabbinic comments on the story, another rabbi has God say to Eve, the serpent was your serpent, which is a pun on the word, the Hebrew word for teacher, and you were Adam's serpent. You were the snake. So there's very derogatory comments about women and their possible roles in many of the early Christian sources that are trying to sort of, you know, put the genie back in the bottle and put women back in their place. And what you see in many of these texts are are, are what Dawn spoke about before, uh, objections, uh, games, almost jokes. But more than jokes, I mean, talking about Eve, not as the one who first sinned, which is what the, the letters of Paul say, but Eve as the teacher of Adam, the teacher of wisdom, the one through whom he becomes spiritually aware. Yeah, the, 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 the spirit that is brought to life inside him is sort of a, an interesting take on the whole, like, Eve came from Adam, from his body, from his rib. It's it's that she was spiritual awareness that was drawn out of him. Yes, it's very interesting. And so somebody's playing with the stories and turning them upside down. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What what was would it you you know your theory on what it would have been? Would it have been because there were so many women in the movement and their ideas and their beliefs and their both spiritual and intellectual energy was now unleashed to reimagine or reinterpret or what, what, why did this occur with this particular movement? Well, that's a very good question. Um, it suggests to me that they're rejecting the kind of idea that you mentioned the fathers of the church say, don't you know that you are Eve, you are guilty of sin, you should be ashamed of yourself, you are the devil's gateway. That was another famous line of his. Mm. 
And they're saying, you know, wait a minute. We're, 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 the, we're the ones through whom wisdom comes. We're the ones who, 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 um, through whom imagination flows and spiritual awareness. Uh, we're part of the life process. So I think they're, it's partly playful and it's, and it's partly, um, challenge. Um, and I think resistance to the kind of roles in which they were being cast. Yes. Yeah. How did, how did the, the early church, so how did they suppress this movement? So how, how widespread was it? Let's, let's say, if, uh, how much of a threat was it to, you know, this, this Orthodox notion and structure of Christianity? And then what did they do to, uh, just to put it down? Well, if you read the fathers of the church, they spend volumes and volumes and volumes. They write and tractates. And if you look at, if you read the writings of Tertullian, they're not all about women, but a lot of them are. And what they say is very negative. Um, they write, they challenge, they fight back, and they say, no, this is totally wrong. This is, he speaks about a woman who leads a congregation in near him in North Africa, and he calls her that viper, <laughs> you know, that wow. snake. Um, and viper is a feminine word there. So, you know, he says, these, these, these women, these, they, they, they think they can baptize people. They think they can preach. They think they can be prophesying. They think they can do these masculine things. They should not be allowed. And in his church, they're not allowed. And that becomes the Catholic church. Right. When, uh, when, um, when it becomes the official religion of Rome and, you know, becomes Catholic becomes this, this, uh, this is, this is the actual faith and everything else is heresy. It, uh, all of those opportunities for women to, um, partake in this, you know, sort of new faith that was, that was spreading like wildfire around their region those opportunities all were closed. Yes, and you get a list of writings chosen, which include letters attributed to Paul, even ones that he didn't write, saying women should know their place. Um, their place is definitely in the hierarchy. There are, there's, there's a hierarchy. This Paul does say. The hierarchy goes, there's God on top, <laughs> and under him is Christ. Under Christ is the man, and under the man is the woman. And so the man is the reflection of God, the image of God, and the woman is the reflection of the man. So that's the way the world should be and really is, right? right yeah. And then others go further than Paul and say, well, women should be absolutely silent in the churches. I'm quoting First Timothy, which is a favorite of many evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. Women should be silent. They shouldn't teach. They should keep their mouths shut because they... they led Adam into sin, and the man wouldn't have sinned if it hadn't been for the woman. So they should just be kept silent and submissive. They can be saved if they have children and they are modest and, and obedient. That's in the second letter of Timothy, which is in the New Testament in the name of Paul. And that's what's put in the New Testament, where writings like this are thrown into the Nile and burned. So there's, there's a battle wow. going on, and we, we didn't really know the half of it. 
you know? We well, just saw what was... We what just became, saw who won. Yeah. They call it straight-thinking yeah. orthodox. I, I always think of orthodonto, which means straight teeth. This is straight-thinking, um, and it's straight-thinking that goes into the church. And this to think of is very crooked. The uh, victors writing history. I mean, why... Was it because, from from what you, in all your years of, of research, from what you found, is was it because the women were so, it was so widespread? I guess what I'm trying to, to formulate is, in, in terms of a question, is this kind of response, and Dawn, you and I have talked about this a lot in terms of these patriarchal responses to anything, like any any slightest bit of female power, it flips out. Yes. Sort of the father is in almost every region. What? <laughs> what? You know, polemics immediately generated. Subordination. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. What? What was it? Was there? Was there just an atmosphere? Was it also this connection? Because of course, Rome was a very patriarchal realm, and then you connect the church, the early church fathers with Constantine and Rome, and you know, this you, it's the perfect storm. Was that part of it? You have this perfect storm of patriarchal rage, because it just seems so extreme and pointed, because uh, I wasn't aware of just how of how many of the letters of Paul, as you were saying, weren't really Paul's writing, but so clearly that's a, a, a particular ideology that was that someone said okay we've got to get this in there let's make sure from this day forward this is how women are viewed so it's such a very active and aggressive act i'm just wondering what is what did, what have you found is the 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 impetus for this what what brought this about well i think so you, you you hit right upon it i mean it's one thing to have a little a little group among six friends or 12 or something, right? But when this becomes a very large movement and when it becomes institutionalized, by the way, and patronized by the emperor himself, I mean, how many women are in the Roman govern government? Zero, right? Yeah. So so then you're part of the, of the class and gender structure of the Roman Empire and the, and, and, the people in power. There's never a woman in power in Rome. I mean, if you look at Egypt, you can find someone like Cleopatra defying the, you know, defying the tradition of pharaohs and others too, a few, rarely, but not in Rome. And it, it's very much, as you said, a patriarchal society. And when this, this tradition is growing, its leaders want to be acceptable in that society. You don't criticize slavery. You don't criticize patriarchy. Otherwise, it would remain a very marginal group. You have to align them, align yourselves with the people in power if you want yes. to. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, like, like so many new movements, um, the early Christian um, emphasis on the individual and the the. Um, decisions of the individual relationship to the divine taking precedence over the state that right there is you know is treasonous and dangerous so um so if you have a a new religion that says things like women can preach 
then that's immediately dangerous because it threatens the status quo. Yes, there were groups in which those things happened, but they do become extremely marginalized um, and condemned because that's not the order of nature. I mean, nature is, you know, um, the, the creation story tells you that God first created um, a man and the woman was, you know, created to be his helper. Right, right. Genesis, right. It always, it always, you know, on a side note, Genesis always um, <clears throat> makes me um, giggle a little bit because when God, you know, comes walking through the garden and is like, I know what you did. The first thing that Adam says is, it was her. She did. She did it. It was her. I was innocent. She did it. It was her fault. And she says, the serpent did it. <laughs> so, he made me do it. Yep. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Well, um, we're coming close to the closing of the hour here, and I just wanted to spend a little time on one of the most startling, um, for me, startling and beautiful texts that appear in the Nag Hammadi collection, and that is Thunder Perfect Mind. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yes, I knew what you were going to say. It ha- it, thunder <laughs> is an amazing poem. Thunder... Um, it's a poem that we don't know exactly where it comes from. It's, it seems to be written in the form of a, 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 the hymn to Isis, a hymn to Isis, because hymns to, to the goddess Isis would often start out with the words, I am she who creates the thunder. And thunder in Greek is a feminine word. It's actually Bronte, like the Bronte sisters. Oh. It means, it means, um, but it's a feminine word. And thunder was understood in the ancient world pretty much universally to be a voice of the divine. Here, as you say, it's a divine voice, a feminine voice. And and unlike orthodox texts, for example, the book of Revelation in the Bible, it talks about various roles for women. And the roles are virgin bride, um, virgin mother, Whore. So these are the you have all of them are sexual sexualized roles, right? And and in Thunder you have uh, this divine presence and energy in the world claiming to encompass all those. I am I am light. I am darkness. I am the holy one. I am the whore. I am war. I am peace. And I'm very moved by it, as you are, apparently, because it it speaks to the wholeness of experience, not that women have to be one stereotype or, or the opposite, but rather that this feminine energy encompasses all kinds of different experience. It's an amazing poem, isn't it? What, what struck you about it, Dawn? Uh, that very thing, that it was a feminine voice um, speaking as the divine and and saying that same thing, that I am in everything and everyone. And it goes, for me, it goes back to this older tradition of an understanding of women as the living representatives of the goddess, that within me as as the feminine within me is 
everything that starts life, everything that brings life and every aspect of life that I am, I am a piece of that and a piece of that is in me. Yes. And this is, it's probably influenced, I would think, as I said, by the Isis tradition in Egypt. And then it also alludes to the biblical tradition and says, you know, I am, I am the sister of my husband, uh, and he gave birth to me. And that's a reference to the Adam and Eve story, where Adam, the male and the female are created on the same day. And then the next story says that he, you know, brings her out of his body. And then she says, I am the mother of my husband. So the, the gender roles get completely um, played and replayed out of Genesis in thunder, but it's not limited to the Hebrew Bible. It's also has an image. It says, I am the one whose image is great in Egypt. And I would take her to be Isis. Uh, it could be Horus. It could be Bast, but these amazing presences. Yeah. There's that wonderful line. Um, why then have you hated me? You Greeks because I am a barbarian among the barbarians, but I am the wisdom of the Greeks and the knowledge of the barbarians. So, yes, yes. we're referring to these, um, these pagan sources as well. And do you know how it's been taken up by artists? I, one of my favorite is Toni Morrison. She was a colleague here, and she started an atelier in which brought artists from New York to work with our students and she was you know such a draw that they would all come and at one point our students were working with these artists who came one of them was yo-yo ma and he was playing the cello and he was playing a song and tony had written the lyrics for the song and i said tony that is amazing where'd you get that what's that she said oh uh, that's thunder I just changed some of the words and I went back and I realized she had taken that poem and, and written a little book of poems, which is now in Princeton's library, Firestone library. I don't know if she ever published it commercially, but it's in the library here. She took that poem and made her own poems out of it, which oh. is I am the utterance of my name, you know, and oh. other African-American artists have used it. And, Native American artists have used it, and many artists have used it. Women and we, uh, uh, we I mean, actually, I I, yeah, we actually say, did a one, uh, wonderful episode on beat poets, on women beat poets. And one of the things that we noticed is this: um, the poem "Loba" by Diane De Prima. It's a it's a huge volume of poem, um, but she has sections in it that are are, are almost exactly like. Thunder Perfect Mind, and I'm not certain that she knew of this poem. So there is this parallel among women artists that this um, yes. this poem really strikes a chord um, that resonates and that uh, harmonizes um, amongst a whole variety of of uh, women creators. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is, it really speaks and particularly to artists and poets and, you know, and women who are tuning into this kind of awareness that you are working with on this podcast. And also I want to point out the Dawn, uh, 
was we have a project that we have which is uh, involves sort of a virtual world of sci-fi matriarchy and I actually wrote something based on that poem and oh, Dawn yeah. delivered it uh, yeah so Dawn Dawn's character was a character called the Red Queen which is a play which is based on the Alice in Wonderland Red Queen utters this speech to a patriarchal operative that comes in trying to destroy their matriarchy and she basically she gives him that that's those lines um, from thunder yeah yeah, yeah. Well, so also, it's, it's resonated there's a, a film too and i'm happy to hear that uh, called daughters of the dust done by julie dash who's an african-american filmmaker in which this poem is intoned at the beginning of as the film opens somebody's reading thunder <laughs> oh wow That's it's kind of an irresistible thing isn't it it One, is it really is i'm so glad you're using it and playing with it and working with it you who are well, waiting for me take me to yourselves and yes. do not banish me from your sight do not make your voice hate me nor your hearing do not be ignorant of me anywhere or anytime be on your guard do not be ignorant of me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like the way you read it. We had to get the, the loud applause in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Well, I think this is, is probably, I mean, especially with that particular poem, a good place to, to uh, stop for this discussion. Uh, I want, uh, Elena, is, are there any particular thoughts you want to share as we uh, as we close with the listener about the the Gnostic Gospels and women's roles in them or anything of that? No, I think we've covered a lot, and there's a lot more to explore, and I'm sure anyone who hears what you're doing is going to want to dig into some of these things. Absolutely, and we strongly recommend Elaine's book, The Gnostic Gospels, which I think was uh, the inspiration for um, Sean, a lot of what Sean and I are doing. So. Absolutely. No, I, I, I love that work. And I remember a friend introduced me to that work and saying, you will love this. You should read this. And I did. So it was, uh, it was, it was amazing. So I want to thank you, uh, Elaine Pagels for joining us today. Let's get you a round of applause too. <laughs> thank you. I've much enjoyed our conversation. And Don, thank you as always for uh, for opening the temple doors for us so that we could come in and discuss. Sounds wonderful. I, and thank you, Sean. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. This has been the 34 Circe Salon Make Matriarchy. Great again. We've been talking with Elaine Pagels. Thank you all for listening. Take care, everyone, and blessed be.